<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. Produced in partnership with SubChina, SubChina offers a daily update of all the news you need to know about China in an email newsletter, mobile phone app, and on SubChina.com. We're coming to you this week from two places, an apartment in Manhattan's Midtown East, and from a studio in Beijing, where we're joined by Seneca regular co-hosts, David Moser and Ada Shan. Welcome, Ada and David. Hey, guys. How are you guys doing there? And where are you? New York? We're in New York. That's where Manhattan is. Oh yeah, you, thanks. You might recall. <laughs> All right, let's redo that. <laughs> How you do? <laughs> uh, have you buried David, or is he there? Yes, I'm here. We're here in Beijing, <laughs> where Xi Jinping is. <laughs> right. Where the skies are blue okay, and we're paranoid. Uh, <laughs> it's just a big piece of agitprop. Right. That's why you have to think a little bit before you talk. Okay, I got it. <laughs> All right. Now I haven't mentioned him yet. But here in New York, we also have Kaiser Gore, and I've delayed uh, mentioning him so far because today he is not actually a, a host; he is a guest because we are doing the Kaiser Gore exit interview after mocking me for a year because I moved to Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Kaiser recently departed our beloved Beijing with his family to settle not too far away from me in the American South, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to be precise. Today we are going to talk to the metal-loving, history-reading, sword-collecting, long-haired. Uh, what was I gonna say? I nearly said internet guru. Oh, oh damn! <laughs> Whatever. That's Welcome, the one thing Kaiser. I didn't want you to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I couldn't help it. So, Kaiser, just before I left Beijing, you asked me to do an exit interview podcast. To my kind. eternal regret. Yes. Right. Uh, so we'd done these exit interviews with a number of journalists and media people who'd lived in Beijing for. A Long time just before their final departure, and I initially refused your request, but somehow you conned me into coming into the studio one day to record one, and I managed to sabotage it by drinking half a bottle of whiskey yes, during the recording and saying such unspeakable things during that recording that the whole show ended up being unusable. What you said, I will never repeat, and will go with me and with Bill. Bill Bishop was in, in on that one too, right? And he actually supplied the whiskey, didn't he? He was the one who, yeah, supplied yeah, right, whiskey. Right. And, uh, yeah, fortunately, we deep-sixed that one, and it will never... I hope you deleted the recording. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, um, I, I just didn't want to do that show, and I think part of the reason was that, unlike you, I hadn't actually left my job at the time. I was still managing a team in Beijing. And also, unlike you, uh, I wasn't actually going home. I was moving to America as a first-time Im immigrant who'd never spent more than about three months uh, in this country. And I think I feared that maybe after a year in Trump land, 
I would run terrified with my tail between my legs back to the embrace of Mother China, the only country that I had ever really <laughs> lived in as an adult before moving to the U.S. last year. You um, just became an adult last year, though, so that's that's okay. Right? <laughs> yeah, some would uh, question that, too. Um, you, on the other hand, made a big deal about leaving. or at I, least, I didn't make a big okay, deal. Okay, other people made a big deal, and you were a willing participant. Your band had a farewell concert. Yes, this you, is true. You were active on social media discussing your, your departure, and even on this podcast. Uh, and you accepted interviews from a number of media organizations interested in why you were leaving. And they were, they were very insistent. Right. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, all of this is from a guy who I remember when I first told you I was going to move to Tennessee. You basically told me I was crazy and that you were still a Beijing life. Well, actually, that was just a ploy to get you to remain, at least until I was ready to go, because I still needed you there. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Uh, okay, so now it comes out. Anyway, let's get this out of the way first so we don't have to talk about it anymore. Give our listeners a bullet point explanation of why you left Beijing. I want your why I'm leaving China letter condensed to bullet point form. Oh, it's just one bullet point. I did it just for the kids. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I uh, were single or if I were just married and didn't have children, I wouldn't have left. I had a very, very fulfilling, interesting life there. Um, there's no real reason for me to leave. I, I left David, do you remember when we did that Daddy Issues podcast some time ago? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to mention that, right? Yeah, we we, we talked about you know the the benefits of of elementary school education in China. I, I still kind of believe that my kids having gone to grade school there was a good thing. They learned Chinese for for one thing, which is <laughs> not an easy thing to do. Basic arithmetic, right. useful <laughs> for They'll Chinese. Not kids. have to open a math book for two years now. <laughs> it's great. Uh, no, so it's, it's really all about that and about my you know this crazy idea I have to create these completely bicultural children. Uh, I mean, the the truth of it is, is my wife basically looks at me and says, "Well, look, you're not particularly smart or hardworking, and you've gotten where you are." <laughs> Only. Because you're bi- bicultural or you're sort of bicultural. And if we can't at least give our kids that advantage, then, you know, we failed them as parents. So, yeah, no, for some time, yeah, we we actually for, for maybe five years, you know, we had planned on 2016 as the year we would move to the States, at least until, you know, we have the kids safely off to college. Kaiser, can, can I ask a, just a quick question? This is just in, on, on the issue of bicultural. I think in, in, during that Daddy podcast, we noted that it's probably a little bit easier to actually raise truly bicultural kids, at least from, for Americans, here in, in China rather than in America. Uh, do you think your kids are old enough now that, they've, that the Chinese has, has sort of infected them completely, that they'll never lose it, or, or, or what is your thinking? Yeah, I think the, the Chinese has sunk in really, really well, to the point that they're actually you know, kind of resistant to speaking English right now, or at least my daughter is. She's, she's got this whole thing about only wanting to speak to me in Chinese now when the rule has always been that she was supposed to speak to me in English. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's sunk in pretty well. Um, my, my daughter's quite a decent writer in Chinese. My son's got, you know, a few thousand good characters under his belt. It's, it's not going to, I mean, I think that's, that's sunk in. I, I guess I want to get something else out of the way here. Like, there are a lot of people who assume that my leaving might have had something to do with the worsening political situation in China. Uh, I just want to say that it, it didn't, that 
first of all, I, I don't have my eyes closed. I, I recognize that the political situation in China, at least from the point of view of an American uh, or you know another Westerner, I, I would remind people that I lived in China uh, when it was a hell of a lot more authoritarian than it is now. I mean, and it, it's not like people live in China because they want to enjoy uh, political freedoms, and they—that's <laughs> not why they go there. That's not why they live there. And so, you know, it, it wasn't about that. It, it had absolutely nothing to do with that. Uh, although I completely recognize that that uh, things have tightened down appreciably and possibly for you know a long time. So. Okay, well, that explains the China piece, but you know, America is a great big place, and you're from Arizona. So, why did you relocate to Chapel Hill, North Carolina? My answer to that is pretty simple. I mean, we wanted to go somewhere where there was a, a pretty vibrant intellectual community. That meant, you know, a university cluster, lots of places like that. So, originally, I'd, I'd planned to go uh, to the Bay Area with Baidu. Baidu was going to send me there. Uh, they did, in the end, offer to relocate me, but when the the you know the partnership uh, with SubChina came along, and I had this chance to take this thing that Jeremy and I had been doing for six years as just a, a hobby, and turn it into something I could you know earn a living doing, uh, I couldn't not do that. And then I suddenly realized that I could live anywhere in the states that I wanted to. I figured you know the Bay Area. I mean, if I wanted like congestion, really good Chinese food, <laughs> and and really overpriced housing, I would have stayed in fucking Beijing. Yeah. I mean, right? <laughs> Yeah. So I, I I didn't want I wanted to go somewhere with a, a good a university cluster, uh, you know, a vibrant intellectual community <laughs> and uh, affordable housing. But you know, the first consideration was really good public schools. I mean, to send the kids to, and Chapel Hill has just tremendously good public schools. Mm. So that was that was really it. And then you know, there were other cities in the country that that met those criteria, but most of them were north of the Mason Dixon line, and it snowed a lot. And I don't <laughs> really feel like dying of cardiac arrest shoveling snow in my driveway. That's the, the, so we, we decided the <laughs> South and kind of far up north in the South and near Jeremy too, right? I mean, we're just like, what, seven hours away on I-40? Yeah. Yeah. Which right. is nothing in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big country. It's seven hours close. away on I-40. You need to start talking That's like right. this, you guys. Oh, yeah. We'll see. Asheville David, that was is, terrible. is a lovely place. It's right between us. Oh, I, I mean, we just call it the 40. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I have to say, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how your perspectives evolve now that you're located in a very different, you know, sort of counter programming, if you will. You know, you guys didn't go to the established liberal hubs on the coasts. And I think that's I think that's actually really interesting. I mean, it sounds really snobbish yeah. of me as a liberal no. coastal person, doesn't it? But that's a bi-coastal that's my take elite. on it. Yeah, huh? That's OK. Hey, man, I see a lot of. Priuses with Bernie stickers on them where I live. So yeah, I think it's, it's you're a hub. Pre-I, <laughs> you're in an on pre-I stickers. <laughs> and once Donald Trump becomes president, well, there will be no liberal hubs anywhere. Uh, they'll, they'll all be uh, diaspora liberal hubs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's. Let, That's let's not going to happen. We'll do our best to make sure that doesn't happen. It's a long <laughs> way to election day still. Uh, so Kaiser, this is this is like a. You know, you're still in very much involved with China. Obviously, you're going to be continuing to cover it, but this just sort of is an end of a chapter in in a sense. So you're probably going to be asked this question a lot, which is, you know, what is what are the changes that you saw in China since you came in the 80s and, and, and when you left? Maybe if you could sum up a little bit what you think are the most interesting uh, consequential changes, um, you know, for China itself or in your life. 
I mean, I mean, what hasn't changed? I mean, every, it's been so remarked on. Just anything that I say here would be like entirely banal and repetitive. But I guess one thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit is just how when I arrived in 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 China in the late '80s as a a, a virile young man, uh, just how sexually uptight <laughs> the place was, just how incredibly repressed it was, just how hard it was. Just you couldn't to, get laid. You mean? Well. Not, I mean, not, not easily. <laughs> it took way more work. I swear. No, uh, seriously, it, it, it would just. I, th- I don't think that people have talked all that much about this the, the thoroughgoing sexual revolution. I mean, this mm. what what dating was like. David, you remember what it was like. I mean, Ada, you even must remember how how different it was. Just even in the nineties uh, to now, just 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 sexual mores were so just. Uh, tightly wound and horrible. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, uh, there were a lot of things happening. I mean, you know, the, it was still a fast-growing country, so obviously people were having sex. Uh, but, you know, it was just, it was still just surreptitious. People would, you know, meet in parks and hold hands over these, you know, make-out spots in the public parks and stuff. It was completely different here. And now, I mean, I live on, or I lived until very recently on Gongti, right by all those clubs. And just the, the oozing sexuality of, of that street, just that, you know, pulsing kind of vibe there. You know, David, you know, when we'd record, you'd walk down that street every every time we'd, we'd head over to the pop-up studio now, to record. Now, don't get, you don't know, you, drag you, me into this. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to drag you into this. But it's it's just, I mean, that, that speaks volumes about, you know, how much China has changed. That, right? That's very true. I mean, um, my first year in China, I... Uh, they want. It was very difficult to get foreign language books. In, this was 1995, uh, so you could get a, a lot of like uh, Penguin classics. Um, and yeah, even though I, had, I was supposed to uh, have read the entire oeuvre of uh, uh, of um, the Bronte sisters and Jane Austen at university, I, I I'd kind of not done that, <laughs> but I did in my first year in China, and I actually understood it because suddenly I was. In this it, Victorian repressed this, society, yeah, right? where you know uh, you couldn't really have sex for fun, and you only got married for sort of material purposes. Well, you still only get married for material purposes. But. That's true, but you can have sex for fun. Right. <laughs> this is true. Oh, so I don't know why I went off on sex as like yeah, why that was kind of a pervy <laughs> way. Well, <laughs> but, 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 but we'll talk true. about some other changes. Um, like uh, what else? would you say is remarkable and not the usual things okay they're more buildings it's blah, no blah, no blah, yeah that's know, all whatever, super i'd say obviously it's it's uh, the hardware side it's the software i mean it's I, I i saw the light in people's eyes change i mean from my first trip to china in 1981 i mean which i still distinctly remember i mean i was 15 but i do remember very very well that this the 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 light in people's eyes was different mm. there was something that was not yet switched on yeah. and uh People just sort of came alive by the end of the '80s. It was uh, there was this in, in, incredible interest and thirst for, for everything. There was more cognitive activity happening there. Uh, that it was it was a software change that was monumental. It was it was absolutely earth shattering, and it was really that that made me believe uh, that this was going to be the most interesting story happening in. In, in my lifetime, and that I needed to to be there to have a front row seat to see it happen, to see it unfold. So, Kaiser, like kind of a part of that, um, uh, and Ada, um, Ada and I first met in, I guess, 97. Uh, we were... 98, I think, right? 98. No, I think Ada and I met in It was 97. 98. 98, yeah. was it? Yeah. Okay. Summer sorry. of 98. So, Ada and I were working together on Beijing Scene, which was... 
the first independent English language entertainment magazine in China. Um, and soon afterwards, Kaiser, you became editorial director at China Now, which was an online publication that was in many ways competition to Beijing scene. And there was even a certain amount of rivalry and, you know... Uh, I didn't feel it. Oh, you didn't? I, um, I forgot. <laughs> did we... Did with that um, thing? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Tell us about China now, uh, and what did that teach you about being a sl uh, slacker? Uh, slacker? Uh, no, I mean a journalist, <laughs> uh, <laughs> internet guru. <laughs> well, you know, what did you learn from China now? What was that experience about? Yes, it says China now. Uh, it was actually the brainchild of of really three people. Uh, it was Marcus Broccoli, who at the time was the the Wall Street Journal's bureau chief based in Shanghai. There was um, a guy named Tony Zhang, who was sort of a uh, he was one of the the operators of Park Ninety Seven, this club in uh, this restaurant and nightlife spot in Shanghai, right at at, at uh, Fuxing Park. Mm -hmm. And Graham Earnshaw, who's been a guest on the show uh, at least once, you know, who's uh, a mover and shaker down in Shanghai and has his fingers in many a pot. It was intended to be a portal. It was a bilingual portal, the Chinese and English side, and I was in charge of you know editorial for the English side of it. It was sort of salon meets city search. Uh, so there was there's quite a bit of what nowadays would be called long-form writing. And we commissioned quite a bit of very good writing from from folks like, well, like Rob Schmitz, who was a guest on the show not very long ago, and Peter Hessler, who, my God, I mean, the, it goes on. There's a, uh, There was a, a Craig Simons, who's written a book on the environment in China. Uh, quite a few people who've gone on to pretty prestigious journalistic careers. And it was, it was incredibly fun. We had everything on there from serial fiction, which I, I wrote, and well, Jerry Chan and and I uh, wrote, and you know listings. You know buddies like Mauro. Remember, you know Mauro Marashali, He was part of it. There's the whole China Now crew has. Ciao Mauro. Yeah, ciao Mauro. Uh, lots and lots of, of of people who you know long time uh, foreigners living in China would would know. Yeah, so like Beijing scene, it was sort of a. a a, a crucible for a lot of, of, of China watching talent that you know later on went on to more reputable writing. <laughs> so yeah, it was great. I mean, I still think back really, really fondly to the the Counter Strike sessions that we had after work with you know the first like network <laughs> computers. It was like, hey, this is like an internet cafe. So we all stuck around late after work and just you know shot each other up with machine guns. It was great. You'll fit in really well in North Carolina. I will. I will. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I already am. <laughs> Kaiser, yeah, so that was trying to Kaiser, do you feel like that uh, you're, you're speaking so nostalgically about that era, and I can sort of identify with that. Do you, do you feel that in some sense that, that some of the more interesting things in terms of, of, of the sort of radical change and, and, and you know, amazing surrealistic sorts of developments have already, have already happened, that that era is over, and, and now you know, you're moving on partly because it, you know, now it's sort of like... Um, Dealing with the new normal and and t tweaking around the edges rather than any any sort of radical change. Do you feel that? I think that two things. I I I do think that it was a remarkable time, and I'm very very lucky to have been there to, to see it happen. But anyone who's been in China in, at any time, any slice of, of of time, has been just remarkable. And I think that there's so many of these younger China watchers these days that that I run into who have better language skills than our cohort, the oldsters like us have who are not haunted by certain, you know, specters that, you know, who don't connect absolutely everything to, to 1989, who mm. really kind of are used to thinking of China as more of a peer 
than we are, who are maybe less U.S. or Eurocentric in their thinking. And I, I find a lot of their perspectives really refreshing. And I, I think one of the things that I, I hope that I've done a bit of is connecting with some of these, these people and uh, really kind of taking the time to hang out with them and meet them and, and encourage them and maybe, you know, to the extent possible, share some of, of, of what I've learned along the way with them. But they're great. I mean, they're just amazing. There's, there's, there's tons of them, too. There's just so many of them. And in, in, in many ways, I wish some of us would just get out of the way <laughs> and let them shine because they're great. Well, that will happen uh, naturally. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll yeah. die. Well, yes, we'll um, die. Yeah, uh, we'll just now. die. And some people can hardly wait, probably. But <laughs> let's, let's go back to the Tang Dynasty, shall we? Uh, and by that I mean the rock group. The, the the you were one of the founders of the Tang Dynasty, and uh, Jeremy mentioned your or you, we were talking about your your uh, final uh, performance with your your band Chunqiu. Maybe that's something that we that uh, you've talked about it several times. We've we've talked about it on the podcast in the past, but but maybe you have some new thoughts or, or realizations having come to this part, this end of your chapter. Yeah, I mean, metal and 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 the rock scene there is a really important part of my life for many years in China. No matter what I've done with this podcast or whatever, uh, whatever I left, I think probably this is going to be the thing that I'm kind of remembered for, and that's fine. Uh, I, I think that we should be very very clear on one thing: is that I landed on a low gravity planet with really just stubbornly middling skills on my instrument. And I didn't get much better along the way. It, let's let's make no mistake. I mean, with my chops such as they are, it's not like I would have been able to play in a big famous band in any you know major developed country, right? So I got real lucky, and I'm 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 very grateful for having had that opportunity. But you know, I'm not speaking here as some guy who's particularly technically proficient musician. But I I think that I'm really really glad that I I had the chance to imprint a bit on on the scene here. Uh, to push people, some of the young musicians that I, I got to know, to woodshed a little more on their instruments, to actually gain technical proficiency. And that's part of the reason why I kind of pushed metal as a genre that I thought would be appropriate for people kind of in that stage, because it's, it's one that is really kind of technically demanding. It teaches you, you know, all, lots of rudiments. And I thought a lot about why metal might be an appropriate genre of music for the China of the late 1980s and the 1990s when I was there really active in music. And I, I think that there's a couple of things. I mean, first, metal really is is this incredibly unironic genre. I mean, it, it, it Spinal Tap accepted it. It really just is <laughs> very like, good uh, at laughing at itself. Really? Okay. I mean, it, it it's not an it's 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 really earnest. It's, yes. it's super earnest. Yeah, right. It's true. And I mean, if you think about like, like you, sir. Yeah, where, where no, if you think about like where it is flourished globally, it's like sort of this belt of earnestness that that is like above the thirty eighth parallel, and it, you know, that's it, why you know there's so many metal bands in Finland and in Norway and Sweden and. Um, you know, well, I think I do think um, the Germany, Chinese are, do strike me as being very earnest in a way that I think yes. it's difficult for Americans to be earnest without irony or being sarcastic. And and Chinese people are really to, able to just be earnest about whatever endeavor right. it is they're undertaking. So I think that's actually really interesting. Ex- exactly. Um, genre fit, if you will. That That is kind of funny, Ed. I have to say, as somebody of like the uh, sort of 
English Commonwealth kind of co- colonies extraction. Diaspora. We tend to think yes. of America's uh, Americans as being very earnest. I have to say. Well, but, I mean, there's plenty of metal in the American Midwest where there is, you know, in the American belt of earnestness, right? Right. Okay. okay. It's not a, a genre that's particularly popular in, in New York. Exactly. Right, okay. Right. So, gotcha. but, but um, what I like- there, there are other ways that it mapped really well, I think, onto China. And, and those are, you know, I, I talked about the kind of technical proficiency thing. That maps almost perfectly to, to Kung Fu, to Kung Fu, to martial arts, you know, where you have this sort of almost a kind of quantitative assessment of somebody's proficiency, right? And, I mean, kids kind of got that. Mm. Not only that, but it mapped onto, I mean, like, you know, Western heavy metal, it has as its kind of cultural touchstones medievalism and you know barbarism uh, you know the kind of long-haired warrior kind of dude um savagery is is a big part of it. and and there was lots of that to to i mean you know, so if you look at the metal bands and all their tolkien derived names and and all that you know viking shit and the dungeons and dragons stuff i mean there's there's tons of it in metal and in china there was a good referent for that too in the wuxia kind of the, the martial right. arts yeah, right. the novels I mean, right yeah Badass. And it, it worked really, really well. It's the whole idea behind the name, you know. And Tong it's Dynasty, still hugely Kinsho. popular. I mean, it's just you know, hard rock yeah. uh, metal is still a hugely right. popular genre here. Of course, back then it was like the core definition of spiritual pollution. Too, <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to give the number one yeah. example of spiritual pollution, that would be it. Well, that so, was a feature, not a bug. That's what I'm saying. That's, <laughs> that's that also made it very attractive. Yes, right? absolutely. Well, to a certain subset, I'm sure. But at the same time, you needed to come up with a way that it was going to be sort of acceptable. And I think that Tong Dynasty as a name, as a sort of an idea for the band, worked really well in that context because, you know, the Tong is something that people all sort of recognize as one of the periods of greatness in China's history. And it was great precisely because it was cosmopolitan, because it embraced foreign ideas. And that was the idea, that was the cipher that was built into the name of the band, is that it was sub- subliminally supposed to suggest a kind of uh, a greatness based on an ability to absorb and make Chinese things that were inherently not Chinese. Mm. So you considered the name Opium Wars, but you discarded that because <laughs> Tang Dynasty was much better, right? Well, let me uh, well, with Tang Dynasty. Let me ask you this. So, I mean, I think it's sort of interesting to consider how maybe things have changed since you first arrived oh so long ago. And, you know, would you you know, what is in, that in the music dynamic? Scene, yeah. yeah, I mean, you found an entree because you were a foreigner who spoke some Chinese and you were excited and willing and you had something to share. I think many foreigners in China still feel that way. But how how has that changed? You know, has it fundamentally no, no, changed? That's, or that's has great, it, great I mean, how, what what would you do today if you were to land today, for example? Yes, yeah, I think the bar's higher. I think the gravity has has very much increased here. Uh, it isn't so easy. I mean, it, it's mm. not in our day, Ada and, and David. You know, like David's an exception because David is actually a great musician. But you look at the different scenes. He's making right? faces uh, very modestly. <laughs> oh no, but but look, Ada, like back in the, and Jeremy too, like back in in the the late eighties, the early nineties, or whatever, or even into the late nineties, it was quite possible to be somebody on a in one of the so what were the scenes there was like you know kind of the the, the rave club dj-ish scene right there was like the the film scene oh yeah right? for sure Ada, you, you definitely were you know kind of you know 
very very involved in that. There was the the art scene, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there still is, you know, the art scene. And and back then there were quite a number of foreigners involved in each of these different scenes. Or multiply. I mean, it, I was it's, involved in. I think well, all well, of the above, but yeah, that's you, know. right, you were <laughs> no, but it, but it was that kind of place where you could do kind of anything and almost everything. I mean, do you remember when business cards would l- routinely list like ten different right. <laughs> services? Right, and, sure, you know, sure, and yeah. and I don't. I mean, it was is, yeah, paradise for the dilettantes. Same, then, right? is it still that energy of possibility everywhere? No, or, yeah. no, and I think that's that's a sign. Of, that's a, that's that's a very very. A positive sign of maturation. I think that the fact that you know some kind of lame slacker can't come and do what I did, right? Barrier is good. It means higher. it means things have evolved. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, yeah. I, I mean, shit, I I wouldn't want this guy. I mean, me with my you know kind of half half assed <laughs> skills okay. to be able to do. So, it. I mean, again, to our dear listeners, yeah. don't try this at home. <laughs> No, no, do though, do. But I mean, only if you're really. I mean, if you're, if you've got, if you've got the skills, bring it and and yes. and, and show it. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm glad it's it's weeding out much much better than it was at one point. Yeah. Kaiser, I used you to can't just make it as. Yeah. I used I used to say people would ask me why I like China. I said China is my drug of choice. <laughs> do you, are you having with Are you having <laughs> yeah, any withdrawal it. symptoms? He's um, been there like a week. I know. I'm just wondering. Oh, know, okay. Yeah. I mean, heroin. A week is a, a long time if you're going cold turkey, Ada. It is. It, no, of course, I mean, I, my wife and I were just talking about this, this morning, just how pretty much every dream that we can remember since we've been here still takes place in Beijing. Oh, yeah, uh, Everything of is course. still very much sort of situated in Beijing. I, I still think of it as home right now. And, you still and, say here, yeah, even though we're, right. we're there. Right, we're there. And, and, and I, I'm having a... A, a great deal of difficulty not believing that I'm just on a kind of longish holiday, and that at some point I'm going to go, <laughs> you know, back and live real life in Beijing again. That's what I think. You know, I've, I've I, been a very I mean, good I'm American consumer. I still think Jeremy is just, you know, yeah, you just know, a long one, holiday, one yeah. beer away. You know, like I just yeah, he's in rehab. He'll be back soon. <laughs> he will be though. He does. All right, let's talk about cars. Let's talk about something. Cars, you know, okay, sure. That so changed. In the 1990s, as I recall, and maybe Ada, you do too, Kaiser had a car. Sure. Uh, you actually had a car at a time when very few people did. Two decades later, you know, your last few years in Beijing, you were reduced to an electric bicycle. Um, this is emblematic. Let's talk about <laughs> driving in Beijing. I mean, in the 1990s, you were like the guy with the car. Uh, and all your Chinese friends had bicycles or the bus. And then two decades later, all your Chinese friends had Lamborghinis or at the very least, Audis. None of my friends. But okay, they had... No, they've got like very Volkswagen. reasonable... Yeah, they've got okay. exactly... But you were on an electric bike. Um, well, uh, you know, there well, it is. Anyway, right, right. But uh, forget about your loss of status. Let's talk about what it was like. <laughs> this feels like a dig. <laughs> what it was like to drive in Beijing in the 1990s. Wow, yeah. So driving in Beijing in the 90s was sort of like driving in 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 where I live now. I mean, there was there weren't all that many cars on the road. It was just not so goddamn congested. You could actually like pull up that I'm going to go see a play at this theater and I'm going to go park on the mm, stairs. I mean, right. uh, that's, you just park wherever you wanted. Nobody cared. Right. It was just, yeah, pretty crazy. I had a, a red Jeep Cherokee and that was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was relatively inexpensive. We bought it used for 70,000 yuan, I remember. Nice. 70,000 yeah, yuan. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Score. Wow. It was like all my earnings from a, a big show that we did once. I just like plopped it into a car. 
yeah, it was, it was it was fun back then. But you know, it, by by two thousand two, two thousand three, owning a car was something that I just never wanted. After I mean, it was just no fun. It would have been no fun to drive again in Beijing. And you know, when electric scooters came along, I felt this incredible sense of liberation. I miss my scooter. If, you know, you were asking me, Ada, earlier, um, do I miss anything? You know, am I having withdrawals about anything? Yeah, I miss my scooter, man. <laughs> that thing is great. <laughs> I, I love just being able to. I mean, those for those little trips of like you know a mile, two miles to the grocery store or whatever, where I just you know need to go pick something up. I, I hate the fact that I have to get into a car now and drive the car and park the car and whatever. I mean, I'd much rather have the scooter. Well, buy a scooter. Yeah, you can. Well, no, I mean, I, I might buy, buy like a, a gas scooter, but you know, it's pretty hilly where I live in Chapel Hill. Electric scooters don't take hills so well. Did you buy a car already? North Carolina. I bought two cars. <laughs> I bought two cars. I did. Oh I, I, I honestly like. I, I, we arrived on Friday, and Monday by noon, I was the proud owner of a Honda Pilot nice. EX. Oh, cool. L and a Honda Accord, all, both brands. All right. Glasses. Well done. Well done. And a riding lawnmower. <laughs> yeah. This episode of Cynica brought to you by Honda Motors. Wow. Yeah. You are becoming an American again. Yep. I got cable. Yeah, <laughs> cable, two hundred and sixteen channels and three hundred meg internet. I I three hundred Mbps internet. Can you believe that? I don't recognize you guys yes, anymore. I... <laughs> There's some gulfs that cannot be crossed. I mean, it's kind of nice that everything works on the internet now. I I used to be one of those guys. Like, yeah, hey, so it's not such a big inconvenience. So I have to turn my VPN on once in a while. No, it's it's completely different. <laughs> it's completely different. I mean, just having like everything work on your phone all the time, it's just completely different. Try it. You, you'll, you'll like it. That should be my recommendation, just an <laughs> uncensored internet. <laughs> Try it. You'll like it. Yeah. So um, how are your kids adapting? I mean, I can just only imagine. But I mean, they're, they're, for them, this is a, 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 much, a, a much bigger deal because you're just returning to something you're more or less familiar with. They're, they're, they've been to the U.S. many times, obviously, but... They're now in plugged in, to so to speak. What's what's their reaction? It's strange. Um, my daughter is in denial about it still, and she's sort of embracing her Chinese identity, kind of even more firmly. Mm-hmm. You know, like wanting to eat Chinese food all the time. Uh, my son is is just like completely turning American. I mean, before my very eyes. Wow. And he's only speaking English with me pretty much all the wow. time, and he's um, like reveling in in the abundance of hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> he just loves, you know, he loves hamburgers. He's got this, like, you know, this this constantly updated ranking uh, that he's always going, what has displaced In-N-Out or Five Guys recently, you know. But I have to say, you know, one of his, so persistent on his ranking of hamburgers are Home Plate and A Great Leap in Beijing. Oh, so the, those oh. have not been knocked out of his top five yet Interesting. by American Interesting. Uh, huh. Shanghai hamburgers. But right. they don't have In-N-Out. As a Californian, they don't have In-N-Out Burger in North right, Carolina, right. so... <laughs> They, I mean, they yeah. don't. They don't. Got to take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. So how would you imagine then, let's play alternate history, Kaiser, if if you hadn't uh-huh. moved to China oh so long ago, I mean, how would your life be different? You know, if you were a parallel Kaiser who had in, instead returned to the U.S. in 1989 um, and had never come back to China, what do you think... Who would you be today? What, would, what do you think that would be like? It's not so hard to to imagine the path not taken. I mean, because I, I was at such a fork in, in 95. At the end of 95, I uh, was still in graduate school and I had decided basically 
that I was going to, you know, finish my PhD and then just pursue a career in academia. That was going to be it. It's entirely likely that it would have gone that way. Uh, what happened was in May of, of, of 96, of, uh, in May of 95, Zhang Zhu, our, our bass player, was killed in a, a motorcycle accident. And the band really fell on very, very hard times. And I was convinced to come back to China to rejoin Tang Dynasty. That was the reason. I quit grad school to join the band. I mean, it was a very convenient way to be able to tell people uh, that I was quitting grad school without them having judge me, right? which was kind of nice. Everyone could understand, oh, so you're going back to play in this famous rock band. Well, I, I get that. So yeah, that would have been the other path. I mean, I, I think I would have just been a boring academic. Hey, we academics are not all boring. He, he said in a boring, <laughs> a boring way. <laughs> Wait, but aren't you... Aren't you now going to be potentially lecturing in North Carolina? Right. Are you not simply reverting we'll to I mean, your that, true nature? No, no done deal. I mean, I, I'm maneuvering for that. Yeah, <laughs> so no, nothing written in stone yet. But yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still, you know, very much tempted. I, I like being in front of a classroom. I, I mean, I yeah. like the idea that I might shape young minds and impart some knowledge. Okay, so tell us about, you know, with both Tang Dynasty and your band Chunqiu. You you played a bunch of gigs in like some really shithole provincial towns. <laughs> I sure did, yeah. <laughs> and I some of my favorite places in the world are shithole provincial towns in China because they're just kind of like a bizarro. Yeah, no, it's universe. so weird. Yeah, I, I I totally miss that. That's actually I really kick myself for not having gotten out. I mean, since I stopped playing actively, I no longer really you know got out into the sticks and went. I mean, we go on you know vacations and stuff family trips to the old provincial homeland or whatever but uh yeah it's none not, of it's probably not it's quite not the same as, fun, as being there right. as like a rock god who's just had a show can you can you tell us a story sure all about sorts like some like hellhole provincial town okay so i'm not going to name names um, but there's a, a a particular town in northwestern china uh, that we we went to once in, in Tang Dynasty, and this is a very typical experience. Actually, this happened a lot. I mean, this variations on this theme, but generally there'd be some really dodgy promoter, and you know he'd be usually sort of the owner. What's of the his venue. name? Zui Jiban. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy. So he he would uh he would you know uh, promise us the world, and then you know we'd we'd play a show, and it would come time to settle accounts. So he would owe you know. The, the lighting company, he'd owe all these, these people money. And, you know, he'd be buying people rounds and then he would go to the bathroom and he would vanish. You would go into the bathroom and find the, the window open and he'd, he'd skedaddle. <laughs> no way. Give all the cash. Right. It just not paid, paid us. And, and so immediately, you know, you, we had to think about what we were going to do. So we knew that, okay, so our hotel bill has not been paid. And we've been, you know, we hadn't trashed the place exactly, but you know, we had you run up a bar tab and out the window, <laughs> right? And and we no, we we had to abscond out the window, right? Often, like like by tying our shit like in bundles and and lowering it through the window no on way. sheets, right? tying sheets together. <laughs> so be, and so, so you could, and then you just sort of walk out like you know without any of your luggage, like you're going out for a smoke, and then you'd get in a car and go to the airport. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Whistling, I think hands in your pockets. That whatever. sounds a lot more Spinal and, Tap and, than I yes. think you may realize, <laughs> Kaiser. Yeah. Oh well, well, and then you know, in in sometimes our tour manager, if he was kind of smart, he would realize that we were about you know we were getting ripped off, and he would go immediately to 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 the bar back. I mean, to the you know to figure out where they kept all their booze, and he'd walk off with several cases of Jack Daniels or Chivas or something, you know, like to, to so that we'd at least get paid in kind. 
<laughs> and you know we we would like leave with several cases of liquor because you know we weren't get, weren't going to get cash. Uh, it was pretty funny. I mean, and then of course there's all those the the, the everyone asks me well, what about groupies, right? This is not related to what I was saying earlier about sexual liberation because this was just bizarre. I mean, you do not so there the, was a rule with Tang Dynasty they they just never touched any of these girls and I could see why because most of the time. Uh, your encounters with like the ardent fans would begin with them coming up to you after a show and handing you a thick envelope that would be would have a cover letter usually, which would detail why, how it was that one of your songs prevented them from committing suicide. Wow! Like or in the midst of like I was about to slip my wrists to the bathtub. It was was full full of warm water, and then your song came on and it made me realize there was you know a lot to live for. Oh my goodness! And yeah, and, and it was. And one woman in particular had a whole bunch of eight by ten, like professionally done photos of her in various outfits. And uh, as we were flipping through one of them, we came across they were, they were they were weirder and weirder until she started dressing in like these homemade Nazi outfits with like swastika uh. armbands and, and and it was it was like brown shirt shit and. It, Whoa! And so you, 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 I could see why they had this rule. You, you never got involved with any of these women. <laughs> that's just a trip. I, I, I won't go on with the rest oh, yeah, of the that's always go back to real. Same with you, Kaiser. So, I mean, it, I think it's really interesting. I'm still a little bit in denial, as I think David is as well, that you guys are now both American in you know, or or living in back in the U.S. How does that change? How do you think that will change your perspective and what we do here on uh, on Seneca? Well, I, I don't think it'll change it, you know, fundamentally. I think it's still going to be a show about current affairs in China, and it's still going to draw on on um, the expertise of the guests, the people that we, we find. We just sort of have tapped a new vein. Uh, we'll continue to, to do shows, you know, with you guys rounding up folks in China. Great. We'll just sort of add to it. We're, nice. we're, we're going to have a lot of, I mean, recently we've been taping a lot of shows in New York, but we've got a bunch of shows to tape in Washington, D.C. We'll be in San Francisco in the fall. We'll be back in China. We'll be doing shows, you know. I, I think it's it's hopefully only going to get richer and more diverse. I think we'll do probably more shows that have to do with uh, different facets of U.S.-China relations uh, because we will have access to so many people who are sort of looking at those issues from the American side who aren't based in China. But other than that, I... I Jeremy, what do you think? I mean, is it that's that's pretty much what we've talked about, yeah? I think so. I mean, I think um, you know, uh, of course, uh, uh, Ada and David, we're very happy to have the two of you on board because it will enable us to have uh, people who are still on the in Beijing, in Beijing yeah. um, so that you know, even if we only get back twice a year, we'll at least have people who are there mostly year round uh, who will correct us if we lose touch um, um, <laughs> but I don't think it's really going to anything's really going to change um, I mean I think both of us are pretty plugged in to China both in a very personal sense because of our families and our friends uh, and also because of the things we're interested in so I, I, I don't think the, the sort of focus of the show will change I think maybe the biggest difference is that because we're working with sub-China and doing this more professionally, we will have more energy to devote to try to make this thing better than it was. 
uh, that professionalism may not be in evidence in this particular show. <laughs> well, <laughs> but let's refer you to, to earlier shows in this series since we joined SubChina. Well, look, professionalism uh, can mean a number of different things. <laughs> I, I, I don't think professionalism can exclude being fun or... Um, Silly. Uh, talking shit. <laughs> oh. right, right. It just means you have more time to devote to something. Let's get to recommendations. But before we get to recommendations... I just want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. So I'm usually the first one to issue recommendations, but since Kaiser is the guest today, your turn, buddy. <laughs> hey, thank you very much. So yeah, so in the spirit of, of our uh, the the metal conversation we had earlier, I'm going to recommend uh, the cinematic oeuvre of one Sam Dunn and his partner Scott McFadden. These are a couple of Canadian-based documentary filmmakers. Uh, Sam, in particular, is he's a, a metalhead. He's he actually was an active bass player in in a metal band in Toronto, and. Uh, is also an anthropologist and he you know he's he's an academic anthropologist he has a, a master's degree in anthropology from i think NYU or something is really sort of interested in the metal tribe in in metal culture and produced a terrific documentary is in 2006 it was called A Headbanger's Journey was, uh, and it was just uh, a terrific success he went on to make another one uh in 2008 called Global Metal about the sort of global phenomenon of heavy metal and uh, my band oh, my old band and my new band were both featured in that documentary uh, and it's it's quite good he goes around the world he you know, goes to Latin America he goes to you know, India Indonesia uh, the Middle East and 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 you know, talks about the global phenomenon of, of heavy metal. He did another documentary called Flight 666 about Iron Maiden and uh, a tour that he followed them on uh, where you know, as as they did when they came to to, to Beijing and Shanghai recently, where uh, they uh, the the lead singer of Iron Maiden, as as, as anyone who who knows the band well uh, knows, is actually a pilot in and he he flies his own seven forty seven. It's kind of an amazing thing. But uh, then they they did what it was one of my very favorite documentaries of all time. It was it was called. Uh, Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage, uh, which actually won like the Audience Award at the Tribeca Film Festival. It's a really well-loved documentary about a band that was incredibly influential in my own life. So, uh, yeah, his his films are great. He apparently has a new one out called Satan Lives about uh, <laughs> about Satan in popular culture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, Satan. <laughs> So Ada, why don't you go next with a okay. recommendation? I've got a couple of um, recommendations here. So starting off with something a little bit more on the serious side. Um, I don't know. Do you guys know Shelley Rigger? I don't know if you guys have had her on the show yet, but she seems really interesting. No, we haven't. Okay, so she just wrote a piece called The End of a Golden Age in China-Taiwan Relations. And it's up on the, China, uh, the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy uh, Facebook page and website. And it's just a comment on Tsai Ing-wen's inaugural address and some really useful analysis, I think, for, you know, kind of how to thread the needle um, between, uh, you know, how Taiwan and how mainland China um, see the, 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 the shifts that were, could be read into um, or not into um, her address. So Tsai Ing-wen is the 
new president of, of Taiwan, of course. So that's a that was an I thought was a very very um, interesting and useful uh, piece of uh, foreign policy reading there, and um, and then two other uh, quick recommendations. One is is um, you know since we, I mean it's been a few weeks now, but um, obviously Muhammad Ali uh, has passed, and for folks who have not yet seen the documentary When We Were Kings, I. You know, I mean, just what a tremendous, what an outstanding and fascinating figure. And I just think a really um, amazing uh, person to um, to reflect back on his life and his times. And 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 you don't have to be a boxing fan to uh, watch this documentary and and really enjoy it and get a sense of of what he meant um, for uh, for so many people. Um, around the world. And then my last recommendation is uh, to comment on the passing of uh, uh, bluegrass legend Ralph Stanley, and um, who died earlier this week, I think just a few days ago. Um, and just to recommend checking out um, some of his stuff on YouTube. So, Thanks, Ada. David might have a more specific yeah, recommendation you. there. But I just wanted Save to throw that out Save some for next time, there. you know? <laughs> Come on, girl. <laughs> David, what do you have for my us? My turn? Okay. Uh, I was at the Bookworm last night. You probably both remember that place. I remember that place. Uh, yes. And uh, for a book launch or a book party or whatever for, for Alec Ash's new book mm. called Wish Lanterns. And uh, yeah. you you were very missed there. I mean, both mm. of you, but especially Kaiser. And I'm not exaggerating, Kaiser. Everyone I talked to said, you know, <laughs> oh, God, how did, yeah, no why did he leave? And this, uh, you know, it was just like uh, every conversation was suffused with Kaiserhood. <laughs> <laughs> Kaiserness or something. It was Kaiser, oh you know, nostalgia. So it sounds a little unbearable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can yeah, we shut up? About <laughs> no, but you were you you are and were and and you know sorely missed. Yeah, and you know you you have passed. This whole experience has oh, been no. like being present oh, no. at your own funeral. Oh, but no. but back to the, the Kaiser the, passed. <laughs> he didn't die, but he passed. Right, right. He's passed. Right. I passed but, on into the western. But this, this book, uh, Alec has done a great job. Put a lot of work into this book, and and. I, uh, it's a very interesting and important topic, the, the, but the millennial generation in China, he, he sort of follows the lives of six people who are not, not strategically selected to be representative exactly of any particular group, but he just, just six people, of a very, very diverse group of people, including a, a musician, a sort of a rock musician. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's very uh, moving, some of it. It tells about the problems of this generation. But in, in the telling of these stories, of these lives, he, he touches upon and has to, in passing, describe virtually all of the interesting uh, you know, media and social events of the last you know, decade or two. All the social media scandals, and the, the dating shows, and, and the, the parental uh, conflicts, uh, the different ideas about money, materialism, the, the difficulty of, of being a young person in this in this uh, you know new environment in this new economy, um, and it's it's very very well written. Um, he put a lot of care into crafting uh, crafting it like a work of fiction, and it's a, a it's nice to read. And it's also just for someone who is wants to just catch up on the recent decade uh, of all of all the events in China this is now the go-to book I think it's got a it's packed with all sorts of information about um, recent China post internet China I would say and then the post 90s generation I strongly recommended it. it's a very good I'm book. gonna have to get that on Kindle 
Yeah, my, my copy of it, unfortunately, got packed in a box, so I'm going to have to get it on Kindle. And David Ada, you have an assignment, which is to round up young Alec and get him on the show so we can talk to him, because oh, yeah. I love that guy. He's a, he's a great, That's easy. Great, you, great, great you shouldn't, don't use the word round up in the context of Beijing Kaiser. Just pick another word. Round up is, you know, round up guest. Don't use that word. But yes, I, w- I will call him and invite him onto the show. <laughs> Ask yes. him to tea. <laughs> For tea. <laughs> Yeah, he does need to be asked for tea. I'm sure there are other people who are considering that at the moment, asking Alec Ash for tea. Um, Okay, so I will give the last recommendation, and it's not particularly China-related. It's podcast-related. If you have an iPhone, um, I would recommend the Overcast uh, podcast app, Overcast. It is designed by a guy who was, I think, the kind of chief engineer behind Tumblr.com. And then, you know, because he made his millions after they sold to Yahoo, he now has the leisure to work on passion projects. And one of them is Overcast. It's a fucking fantastic app if you like podcasts. It just is so wonderfully, just works so well. Uh, particularly if you use an iPhone and use Apple's own proprietary podcast app, which is really awful, you will really appreciate it. It's free. It operates on a patronage system. So if you want to give him money, you can, but you can download it for free and have access to the full set of features. And it just works so well. And it's so nice. Is is Seneca on it? Um, oh, uh, we're great. trying to get on the directory. Oh, okay. I don't think we're on yet, but we will be soon. I have no doubt. Um, well, after that fulsome plug, how yeah. could he deny it? Hey, Overcast dude, put us that on your fucking directory already. Um, <laughs> but it, it really is wonderful if you have an iPhone and listen to a lot of podcasts. The great irony will be he'll 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 say no because you swear too much. Because I swear too much. Yeah, I know that that's happened to me a lot in my life. You right. Know? Just when I thought I'd succeed, somebody says, "Oh, you said the f word." And visa denied. Anyway, Ada and David, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. And you will be back on the show very frequently because we're going to, we figured out the technology to make this work. So it's going to work. Let us uh, quickly thank subchina.com, our new partners. Um, check out the app and yeah. the daily What's email. Up, China? Uh, news, Thanks, SubChina. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, so, Jeremy, I'm going to rescue you from that feeble attempt at an outro. The Seneca podcast is powered by Sup China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng and Amadeo Tumavillo and Soraya Darabi from Sup China. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast or Sup China at Sup China News. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.